From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. And I am a candidate for President of the United States. I am going to run for President, that's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. We are going to win. I'm the son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other campaign and election experts and hear their insight into the 2020 election. And we will make America great again. This is the United States of America. There has never... To announce my candidacy for president of... This is 1050 Bascom, election 2020. So we are back today with Professor Barry Burden, Professor of Political Science here at UW-Madison and Director of the Elections Research Center. So it's been quite a wild week and a half in American politics. The Iowa caucuses collapsed spectacularly and the President of the United States was acquitted by the Senate. Former Vice President Joe Biden, who looked to be a very strong contender for the Democratic nomination, has faded, especially after last night, while Pete and Amy also last night surged, perhaps beyond expectations, while Bernie Sanders remains strong. Professor Burden, th- first of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me back. So out of New Hampshire last night, what is the number one story? What should we be taking away from last night over everything else? I think there are a few storylines. Uh, one is that Sanders is at the front of the pack, I think, at the moment. He's just got a real head of steam going into these upcoming states. He's raising a tremendous amount of money the way he did four years ago. And he's now finished first in the popular vote in Iowa and in New Hampshire. So you'd have to say odds are on him at the moment to do well in the upcoming states. But I think the other storylines are the amazing performance of Amy Klobuchar, uh, especially relative to the polls going into New Hampshire and where she was coming out of Iowa. She finished third last night almost with 20% of the vote. So she's right up there with the other two guys. Um, But the race is going to drag on for a while longer. I think that's the other thing we know. Uh, sitting out uh, a few weeks ahead is Super Tuesday with Michael Bloomberg spending millions of dollars and investing a lot in television advertising and staff. That's going to complicate things down the road. Tom Steyer, who is not a factor in Iowa or New Hampshire, will be in South Carolina. He has potential to finish second or third there. So um, it's, th- there's still a long road ahead. Before last night, Tom Steyer didn't really register on many people's radars. So what is he doing differently in South Carolina? Uh, He's been on the air in South Carolina pretty continuously, running lots of ads, and that's one of the states where Bloomberg has not entered. So he has free reign as a a billionaire to invest that way. But he's also making lots of connections with African-American voters. That did not help him in Iowa and New Hampshire because the black vote is so small there. But in South Carolina, it's maybe a majority of Democratic votes. Biden did have the black vote wrapped up, but he's been faltering, and I think that has made black voters open, at least, to another message, and and Steyer's been appealing to many of them. Yeah, fair enough. Mm -hmm. So before we get in and look a little closer at some of these particular candidates and their campaigns, how do you think, you were in Iowa when this all happened, Um, maybe just, what was that like being there, and how do you think that the mess that happened with the caucus there plays into the results we saw from New Hampshire last night? Yeah, I spent four days in Iowa. Uh, I was attending a conference and also going to candidate events. I saw four of the candidates up close and then watched the caucuses at a couple of different sites. 
the caucuses, I'll just say, are a messy process. It's, it's not a primary election. It's a party meeting. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of humans involved. <laughs> and it's unevenly administered. It's volunteers uh, who have very strong views about things and sure. are not professionally trained. And they're doing this at 1,600 locations across the state. So there were a couple things I saw at the main caucus site where I spent time that I thought were not how I would have administered things. <laughs> sure. Uh, the order of events was a little different from one place to another. Um, the strategy or lack thereof from some of the groups was amazing. I'll just give one example. I I watched the Biden group at one caucus site not have enough people to be viable. You have mm-hmm. to earn 15% of the vote to be viable. Once they discovered that, they didn't know what to do. There was no leadership. There was no one giving them direction. They had not thought about who their second choice was going to be. There is a realignment process that's right. pretty well known and yeah. was announced to everyone at the beginning. And so they just sort of broke up as a group. And the leader of the, of the Biden camp actually just walked out and didn't cast a second choice. Wow. The rest of them kind of s- fell apart. Some of them left. Many of them went to Klobuchar because the Klobuchar people were sitting at the next table and it was hmm. nearby. <laughs> so very little strategy <laughs> uh, and not a lot of organization, not a lot of consistency. That has always been the case in Iowa. But this year, there were new measures that made that more evident to all of us. Mm -hmm. The paper card that people had to fill out was new. The fact that we were going to get three different results out of Iowa, I think, made all of that messiness very visible. And then the failure of the app, obviously. (laughs) The perfect storm. Yeah, that was the icing on the cake. Uh, It's it's very strange that we let a state like Iowa go first. It's not representative. It's of of the Democratic Party, for sure, but not even of Mm -hmm. the whole country. But it's really an amazing opportunity to get up close with candidates. You know, there I was just a couple days before the caucuses, and you could have a conversation with a a very brief interaction. So you get in the rope line or go to an event, and there's opportunities to ask questions directly of the presidential candidates and to have a kind of personal interaction with them. That would not be possible if we went to something like a national primary. So it definitely has virtues, but there's, I think, a lot to ask questions about, and the Democrats will be doing that after the election. So when we're looking at New Hampshire, do you think the results coming from Iowa had a big influence on what happened there? I do. You know, these events are sequential, so each one is partly a reflection of what happened in the most recent events going into it. Uh, I think Elizabeth Warren's underperformance in Iowa probably did her no good in New Hampshire. There, There wasn't a lot to brag about coming out of Iowa for the Warren campaign. Uh, whereas Buttigieg, I thought, got a real boost. He might have gotten more of a boost if the results had actually been announced on caucus night, but he pretended as if they were, and he went on the air first and got free time on national cable television to give Mm -hmm. his stump speech and to basically give a victory speech. And I I think that helped him sew up some of the mainstream Democratic support and gave him a little energy going into New Hampshire. So very much, I think, Iowa contaminated what happened in New Hampshire. David Cannon, last week we talked with him, also mentioned kind of that implosion of what happened and how all of that might affect everything going forward. He also suggested last week that a contested convention is more and more likely as we go on, and 538 also agrees. What do you think about that? It's very possible that we'll get to the Democratic convention in July and no candidate will have a majority of delegates wrapped up. That used to be common in American politics, but we've sort of forgotten that that's a possibility, and that's what conventions used to do, was solve those problems for the party. Uh, I don't think the Democratic Party is prepared if that's what happens. 
because it's not something that's been common in the recent past. But I, th- I think it's it's a real possibility, particularly as I say, we get to Super Tuesday and and Bloomberg is there waiting and Steyer's been spending money on those states. Now we're adding candidates to the mix rather yeah. than taking them out. <clears throat> I think candidates who have been doing well in these early contests like Buttigieg are going to have more trouble in South Carolina and Nevada where the demographics are different and in big media market states like California and Texas. So it, I, even Elizabeth Warren, I think, whose campaign is in trouble, is really betting on hanging around and fighting it out delegate by delegate. So you mentioned it, but a big story coming out of last night was Amy Klobuchar performing, overperforming expectations. Um, a lot of her support's coming from college-educated voters, including uh, college-educated women. So is that maybe the story of why Warren's also falling? Because a lot of her support came from that same demographic. Yeah, there's an interesting relationship between the two of them. You know, both of them were endorsed by the New York Times editorial board. That's right. It's a very unusual move to endorse <laughs> both of them. And I saw Warren in Iowa. She made no mention of that. <laughs> interesting. She didn't mention she taught at Harvard. Any of these things, I think, that would be viewed as elitist. True. And not not Iowan and not New Hampshire. She didn't bring up. Amy Klobuchar brings up the New Han- the New York Times endorsement at every event. Really, wow. She says, "Look, here's external validation that <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm a competent candidate who well represents the party and can take on Donald Trump. Mm. So that's a that's a badge of honor for her. So I think she has absorbed some of the Warren support, and also their performance in the debates has been very different." Klobuchar does well in every debate. Mm-hmm. She does. She, she will raise a million dollars the night of each debate because her supporters are enthusiastic about how she did. And the last debate was in New Hampshire, sponsored in part by a local New Hampshire media outlet. And I think a lot of New Hampshireites tuned in. I think there are about 8 million viewers, many of them in New Hampshire, and they saw how well she did. And she turned some of her moments into viral ads <laughs> that ended up being used effectively. Warren, on the other hand, didn't make full use of her opportunity on the debate stage. Uh, she's much more reluctant to, than Klobuchar to criticize other candidates, which, again, might make her a unity candidate down the road at the convention. She hasn't made any camp angry, but she also hasn't differentiated herself. She's not quite as progressive as Bernie Sanders. She's not quite as moderate or as much the legislator that Amy Klobuchar is. She's not old school Democrat the way Biden is. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit of her not being any one thing. Uh, which, again, in a convention setting might work for her, but in the primary stage right now is not. Yeah. No, I, I think Klobuchar thinks she's going to win or that she can win. Um, I, don't, I don't think she would have hung around this long with anemic fundraising <laughs> and, and not great support in the polls, but now it feels like it's paying off for the campaign. Uh, ju- just today I heard one of her surrogates talking who was saying, uh, the governor of Minnesota, saying, look, people are now paying attention to the campaign and they're realizing – the value of her candidacy that they had not appreciated before. Mm. So, and, and there, you know, there are examples in the past of candidates working this way, quietly building and the climbing their way to support. So it's not easy. It's still a big field. The people she's up against mostly have more endorsements and have more money and have better organization in the states that are to come. Uh, but no, I don't think she's out of it by any stretch. Is Joe on his way out with the fifth place finish last night? Or I wouldn't think that a former vice president finishing in fifth place in New Hampshire, of all places, is a good sign for his candidacy. It's a terrible sign. I would say Joe Biden is in real trouble. Now, if you look back, he's, he's run for president multiple times and never fared well in the primaries. Yeah. Uh, he ran back in 2008 against Obama and Clinton and the other Democrats, and he bailed out the night of the Iowa caucuses that year after finishing, I think, fourth or fifth. So uh, he ran way back in the 1980s as well. So 
this, he's actually gotten further <laughs> this time around. But as you say, he was vice president of the United States and has lots of connections in the party and has done reasonably well raising money, has more endorsements than any other Democrat. But it seems to just be crumbling before his eyes. Uh, some of that, I think, is the flip side of Klobuchar. His debate performances are pretty bad. He's not a fluent speaker. Uh, he, he grasps for words and statistics in a way that the other 70-year-olds on the stage do not. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bernie Sanders never misses a word or a statistic. <laughs> he will yell it at you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Biden is sort of scrapping just to put together sentences sometimes. And it's not clear what his message is mm -hmm. other than I am the person who can beat Donald Trump and help Democrats down the ticket. But Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar are also offering a message like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard to see what his unique qualities are uh, that he brings to the table. He had been doing very well um, in the black and Hispanic communities, and that might still be a bit of a firewall for him down the road. But even that seems to be fading at the moment, and yeah. I think those voters are looking around. So not out of the question that he would be the nominee at all. And he might be a consensus pick at a, at a contested convention as well. But the trajectory right now is definitely in the wrong direction to finish fifth with zero delegates yeah. in the New Hampshire primary as the heir apparent to the Obama legacy is real trouble. So was it a smart move for him to pack up even before the polls had ended in New Hampshire and go even skip Nevada and go to South Carolina? Yeah, it's a classic move. When things are going badly, <laughs> you just try to refocus the attention. Yeah. So let's he, he tried to downplay Iowa the night of the caucuses. Uh, we didn't know the results, but he, his campaign knew he did not do well from all the intelligence they had gathered. And he came out and said, Iowa's a mess. Let's not put a lot of weight on this. I have always viewed the first four states as a package. So you have to look at them as a whole. So let's, <laughs> let's de-emphasize these first couple of contests and be sure to add Nevada and South Carolina into that. And so him ab abandoning New Hampshire last night and running to South Carolina was another way to try to put the media attention on the on the next states rather than the ones where he had flopped. It didn't work because there were enough interesting stories coming out of New Hampshire that he just he and Warren were just ignored last night in the coverage, I thought. Yeah. Um, but that's but, you know, it's, it's now where we are. So fortunately for him, attention will uh, turn to those next two states. But he, he now has to perform well. And um, if, if not, I think it's it's hard to see how he comes back. Yeah. Something really interesting just happened. I got a notification on my phone. A third candidate has dropped out since last night. Deval Patrick just ended his bid. Mm -hmm. Michael Bennett and Andrew Yang also ended last night. I don't think that those are much of a surprise, but what do you think of those? Yeah, the winnowing is finally happening. And this is back to our earlier conversation about what Iowa did. It didn't do the thing it normally does, which is push candidates out of the race. There's an old folk wisdom that there are only three tickets out of Iowa. You know, maybe three or four candidates could really emerge. We left Iowa with still 10 or 11 yeah. candidates yeah. in the mix. Uh, but just in the last 24 hours, we've lost three. So I think the field is down to eight. Uh, that's still on the high side as <laughs> right. fields go. We uh, historically might be down to four or five at this point. Uh, but one of them, I think, is Tulsi Gabbard, who probably does not have much chance. Tom Steyer is a little bit of a wild card. Mike Bloomberg, we haven't seen yet, unless you live in California or some other places where he's running ads and visiting. So it's a, it's an unusual eight. Um, but but at least now these events are beginning to do the things they traditionally do, which is to settle the field down to a small number of people and really focus the conversation on their differences. So you talked about Joe Biden, too, um, kind of hedging some of his support in um, black voters in South Carolina, other people of color around the country. When we're looking at 
at a situation where Biden drops out, where do you think those voters go? Because there's not a clear candidate outside of Joe Biden now who's performed really well with that demographic in the past. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the dynamics are a little different for black voters and Hispanic voters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sanders had not done well with really either group in his last run. That was partly because Hillary Clinton did so well. She had such warm feelings among uh, black voters in particular. Mm -hmm. He has made more of an effort, I think, to reach out to those communities this time. The black vote is slowly trickling in his direction. Uh, Hispanics, I think, have been a much more reliable group for Sanders. He's organized his campaign, particularly in the Southwest, to target Hispanic voters. He's hired a lot of Hispanic staff, a lot of bilingual field workers, and has just put effort into that. And he's gotten some endorsements from minority members of Congress, which have helped as well. So that puts him in a better place in, say, Nevada, where the Hispanic vote is larger. South Carolina, I think that's going to be the the key moving part that we don't quite know the answer to yet. What's happening to the black vote as it begins to lose its enthusiasm for Biden. He's clearly not going to do as well as it initially looked from the polls. I think Sanders will pick up some of that. Buttigieg is really hoping that he can dig into the black vote because he's not done well among minority voters so far. Uh, Klobuchar, similar kind of thing. Uh, She's got a little more energy, I think, coming out of her surprise showing last night, so maybe she can translate that into something. Buttigieg wants to expand the demographic base of his coalition. So it's going to be a dogfight in South Carolina over the next week to try to win over those black voters. And as I say, they're, they're a majority of Democratic voters in South Carolina. And that's why South Carolina was added to the mix of the first four states, was mm-hmm. to make sure black voters had a say in who the nominee was. Well, they're going to get their say this coming week. Yeah. You know, Each candidate has some baggage they need to get around. Um, Bloomberg is still dogged by his policies in New York as mayor and whether he was really endorsing the stop-and-frisk policy or it was a legacy that he inherited. Uh, mayor Buttigieg, I think, has similar kinds of questions about his time as mayor. He butted heads with the police chief and the fire chief there, both of whom were African-American. There's been some pro- sort of Black Lives Movement kinds of protests there. But he also has surrogates working for him who are African-American or connected to that community and are vouching for what he did in South Bend. So I I think it's a complicated picture, the way of managing a city often is, and um, it'll be a matter of perspective. There will be some black voters who are not coming to Mayor Pete, regardless of what he or his surrogate said. But I I think he'll pick up support. He has been picking up support among black voters, and that will probably continue to build to some degree at least. So looking a little closer at Mayor Pete and his campaign, another big story coming out of last night. He um, performed well, also coming out of Iowa with sort of a half win. We talked last time we sat down about how the Democratic Party sort of, there was this progressive camp emerging and the more moderate centrist camp. I think those camps maybe are still there, but the candidates are shifting a little bit. What do you make of Mayor Pete's rise to sort of almost replacing Biden? And is he, at this moment, a nationally viable figure? Buttigieg is definitely a viable figure. Uh, Having sort of won or finished second in two states now, as somebody without the pedigree, the establishment credentials of the other Democrats, is impressive. He's raised as much money as any of the other candidates, uh, maybe aside from Sanders. He's got a surprising number of endorsements from Democratic elected officials and celebrities. I saw that Kevin Costner was in New Hampshire campaigning for him. So that's going to carry him a long way. Uh, I think there are challenges for his campaign in the upcoming states. He's not as prepared, I think, for some of the ones that are yet to come. Uh, but but he, I think he's right in the mix with the other Dems. He, he's certainly more moderate than Sanders. 
and so I think is viewed as an alternative to him on ideological grounds. But he's also just very different in style. He's mm-hmm. polished. Sanders is rough. Mm-hmm. He's in his 30s. Sanders, Biden, and Warren are in their 70s. Sanders has been in Washington since the 80s or 90s. Buttigieg has never served in national office or uh, gone to Washington as a member of Congress. So there are a lot of interesting contrasts. And I, I saw at the Buttigieg event I attended in uh, Iowa that his placards often have the phrase, turn the page, as part of the messaging. And I think that's a, a kind of effective strategy, both because it makes voters think about Trump. Democratic voters want to get past the Trump era, of course, so it's turning the page on that. Yeah. But it's also turning the page on sort of the old Democratic Party, mm-hmm. maybe the Hillary Clinton wing of it, which was not successful in 2016, and turning to a new generation. So that's a pitch he'll make, that you need fresh faces, and fresh faces are often what wins for Democrats. Think of Obama, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton. So he's trying to tap into that. I think I think that makes him really viable, not without challenges, but a, a potential nominee. Yeah. I remember when he first came onto the stage, he made a lot of noise about his age and his generational difference with the other candidates. Um, that also came up on the last debate stage, more in the question of experience and whether that matters. Is experience something voters care about? <laughs> uh, they will say so. Uh, but I uh, think back to 2016, uh, so Donald Trump won the election. He's the only president in American history not to have served in government or the military. So those are those have been traditionally very important experiences. Right. Uh, Hillary Clinton was probably the most experienced presidential candidate in modern history, having been a senator, a first lady, a secretary of state, mm-hmm. and other things. But Trump made the argument that that was bad experience. That was his phrase. You have a lot of experience, Hillary, he would say, but it's bad <laughs> Washington experience. Right. We don't want that. That's part of the swamp that I'm trying to drain. I think that has opened up the idea for lots of Democrats that the traditional pedigree that someone has, a, a Joe Biden kind of pedigree, isn't maybe necessary, maybe isn't helpful. And that being an Obama kind of character with pretty limited national presence might be helpful. It, you know, it makes Buttigieg a little bit of a Rorschach test, I think, for voters. They can see in him what they want. Yep. Is he progressive, kind of? Is he a technocrat? Yeah. <laughs> is he pragmatic? You bet. Is he smart? Of course. Uh, you know, so you can, you can sort of find the thing in there you want. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure the lack of experience hurts him exactly. Um, but, but I think it's a sign that, that parties and candidates are at least thinking that traditional profiles no longer apply. The two elections we've had so far in Iowa and New Hampshire make pretty clear it's not just Democratic voters choosing candidates who are like them demographically. Uh, and even before those events, we were looking at the early polling when there were still more candidates of color in the race. It wasn't just that black voters were attracted to Cory Booker and Hispanic voters to Castro or women to Warren and Klobuchar. It's much more complicated than that. And the old young divide is sort of flipped with Sanders doing well among the youngest voters. So it really does seem to be either ideology that's driving that or attraction to the style of the candidate. I, you know, I, I think the kind of soothing, calm, methodical approach that Buttigieg displays on the debate stage is appealing to older voters. They would like to return to a kind of, maybe the Obama style of <laughs> dissecting government and trying to find a tactical way to go about it, which is very different from the Trump way of governing. Mm-hmm. But younger voters really like the rough, unvarnished version that Sanders offers. And it feels authentic, I think, to many of them and truthful. And so that's appealing as well. So it's 
it's there's definitely an, an age and gender and race set of cleavages going on, but it's not a one-to-one match between the demographics of the candidates and those things. I think it's other kinds of stylistic factors. What is your take on Pete recently taking on or being more the austerity candidate, saying we need to reduce the deficit? That is one of our main goals. Yeah, I thought that was an unusual move for a candidate, especially one who was doing so well, to then grab on the deficit issue. Um, it felt a little bit like a throwback to the Bill Clinton campaigns of the 90s. He was a, a new Democrat and sort of a, a deficit hawk. And there were lots of Democrats who thought at the time that's the only way a Democrat can win, is to be moderate on fiscal issues, which is not the Sanders <laughs> approach, say. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was thinking strategically that would help in New Hampshire, where a lot of Republican and independents were going to cross over and vote in the Democratic primary. It's an open primary there, same-day registration, so you've got a lot of people who aren't traditional Democrats participating. New Hampshire is a small government libertarian state by culture. Uh, Maybe that helped him a little there, but it's not something that's going to resonate with the Democratic base. So looking forward, I'm kind of wondering what people should be focusing on. Last night in Warren's uh, speech, one of her talking points about her performance was that there's still, correct me if I'm wrong, 99% of delegates still out there. So when do campaigns really have to panic about not making it? Yeah, I think that math's about right. It's 98 or 99% still left to go. Iowa and New Hampshire are tiny. Yeah, A bunch are going to be decided on Super Tuesday, 35 or 40% of the delegates in one day. Oh well, It's a long stretch. It, this runs until late June when the last primary happens. Mm-hmm. And I think she's begun a shift in strategy. This is what you do uh, strategically. Yeah. When you're not winning events and you're not at the top of the polls, you try to convince supporters and the media that it's now a delegate game, which in the end it may very well be if we get to a contested convention. So I think she sees that now as the path for her. She's not likely to win in either of the next two states. So it's just hanging around and being competitive again and again, finishing second, third, fourth, and starting to play the game that I think Obama did back in 08 of focusing on caucuses and trying to win district by district within states because Mm -hmm. the Democrats often allocate the delegates that way. Um, And because the field is large and there's still Bloomberg out there waiting and we don't know what's going to happen to Biden, I I think it's probably the right approach. Maybe it's after Super Tuesday that really a campaign has to kind of call it and say we're in or we're out. Yeah, and you know, why why do candidates abandon races? Uh, Sometimes they're just out of money. So if you can't pay the staff or fly a plane from one place to another – you got to call it a day, right. and you don't have personal wealth to make up for that, then you've got to call it a day. If you're losing support that maybe some of your endorsers have actually left and gone to other candidates and you're falling in the polls, there's kind of an embarrassment factor that might cause a candidate to get out if they want to save their career. Now, if you're in your 70s, as three of the leading candidates are, maybe there's not a career after this. Mm. This is it. So uh, Warren doesn't need to worry about her Senate seat. She's not up for re-election this year in Massachusetts. This is probably her one shot at the presidency. For the time being, she's raising money reasonably well, so I think she can afford to go a little longer at least. So there's no urgency to get out. I think there's an urgency to kind of reorient the campaign (laughs) to try to find some success. But as long as the fundraising will keep her alive, I think she'll try to compete. Uh, But I, I think that's the thing to watch. Are the dollars continuing to come in for her after these two week performances? If you are Mike Bloomberg... Are you feeling good about how things are going so far? Yes, Mike Bloomberg has got to be a happy gentleman this morning. 
even I mean, like after the audio tapes that are kind of damning. Yeah, I, I, sure. There's criticism of his time as mayor, but that is like a second or third or fourth tier story yeah. in today's politics. Uh, Trump is always in the first or second tier. What happened in New Hampshire is what everybody's talking about. So it's actually great from his point of view that the stop and frisk controversy is happening at the same time because it's a it's only for really informed people like you who are paying attention. Most of the public is going to be unaware of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, this is a wonderful thing for Bloomberg because his main competitors in the contest were the moderate establishment older Democrats, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is faltering. The leader now looks to be Bernie Sanders, who is not Mike Bloomberg. Sanders is raising all of his money in small donations, no big contributions. He's not a zillionaire. He's much more progressive than Bloomberg. If Bloomberg can make this into a two-person race at some point between Sanders and his small donation stuff and Bloomberg's own wealth, that puts Bloomberg in a great position, I think, going into the convention. And if he can just push Buttigieg and Biden and the other more moderate candidates to the side, uh, I think it's an opening for him. If if Biden had cleaned up in Iowa and New Hampshire and then was going to roar into Nevada and South Carolina and win those, he'd be four for four. I'm not sure what Bloomberg has left to look for. So this is really the best case scenario, Mm -hmm. I think, for Bloomberg. Uh, he's definitely someone to keep your eye on. Not so much a question about the primary, but I'm just curious to hear your take on what's happened with President Trump over the past couple weeks. He had his acquittal in the Senate last week, some brazen response to the Friday night firings, um, the Department of Justice tweet out on Roger Stone and other things. It seems like he's been emboldened by this acquittal and the Iowa mess, and it might be energizing his base. 538 has his approval numbers up. What do you make of all this happening with President Trump and what it means for the campaign? Yeah, I think he's had a good run uh, the last week or so. Part of this, I think, just to put it in a historical perspective, most sitting presidents do see their approval ratings rise over the course of an election campaign. Mm -hmm. We saw that with George W. Bush in 2004, where he looked like he was in real trouble early on. But the prospect of the campaign and having an opponent really sort of rallies supporters to your side. That was also true of Obama in 2012. So we might expect Trump's approval ratings to continue kind of trickling upward. Mm. I think he's got more of a ceiling than a lot of other incumbent presidents have, um, but he's likely to build regardless of events. Uh, But the acquittal in the Senate, I think, has really emboldened him and his supporters. They feel like they won a victory that was deserved and that Democrats were doing something inappropriate from the beginning, and now they're going to pay a price. And I think it's taken the chains off or the remove the guardrails, whatever your metaphor is. And and I think his campaign staff are going to say the way we win is to let Trump be Trump. And that's that means a governing style that's going to be a little more chaotic and uh, arbitrary, which has worked for Trump, and a campaign that will fit right into that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Professor Burden. Um, it was really lovely to hear your takes about the 2020 primary. Thanks for having me. For more information about the podcast and to submit questions regarding the 2020 elections, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom Election 2020.